Hello, hello, my friends. Hello, everyone. I'm Peter Resnick, and welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick's Toolbox. And Happy New Year. May you, the one who is listening to me right now, as you arrive to December 31, 2024, look back at the year that has just passed and say, this has been the best year of my life. I will start as usual with a little show and tell. Uh, one of my friends on Facebook posted these words spoken by the Greek writer of tragedy. They call them now tragedists, Sophocles, who said, who wrote near, nearly 2,500 years ago, rather fail with honor than succeed with fraud. It's profound, huh? Uh, for some reason, it kind of took, um, got my attention. I, I think it is profound. And I thought about my conversation with my son a while ago. The first time I told him that I intended to share with my audience on PRN my thoughts about the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. And he said, Dad, your specialty is mind-body therapy. You're good at it. Share with what you know best. If you want to keep your audience, please do not talk about religion and politics. And he was probably right. Because I know now, since I have been speaking my mind about politics, I lost a lot of my listeners. But according to Sophocles, I would succeed by fraud. I would shut up and keep my audience when speaking up is so important. Uh, when one feels that there are, I feel there are so many lies and ignorance, not lies mostly, mostly it's ignorance, but lies do come in and I will talk about it. But today, ladies and gentlemen, I will not talk politics from start, just at the end, uh, in case if you're not interested in that at all. First, I will have a little gift for you, New Year's gift, let's call it. That is, if you're curious and you would be interested in attending one of my sessions. I discovered recently in my among my files, I was searching for something, uh, this little clip, uh, a, a session that I recorded. And I remember what happened and this is probably, I recorded it more than, I think more than 10 years ago. Uh, I asked that my client to record actually the session. And later she sent me the session and I told, mentioned uh, at the end of our session that that would be a very good tool, um, teaching tool when I teach my courses to professionals. So she sent me a copy of the recording and gave her permission uh, to share with this uh, video. But since it's not, you will not see a video, you will just hear, um, it's actually not a whole session. It's only a 54 second exercise, which I believe resolved the problem. And I don't believe it actually happened because I know what happened after the session. So that's what I will do first. Then I will answer your emails. 
I received phenomenal questions. And then I will respond to Larry, who called last week, Larry from Florida, with his comments on the subject I was addressing and was kind enough to send me an email with a video, which was to help me to see another perspective on the issue. Thank you, Larry. So, and only then, if we have time, I will, will continue our journey of exploration of the deeper meaning of the Bible. Uh, I enjoy this way of communicating with you, ladies and gentlemen. You can, um, as long as it's not a long, long, long uh, email, please send me. I do read all, all the emails. Uh, to some I just respond and some I just write. Uh, I will talk about it during the show. So if you would like to send me an email, I send it to Peter, number 18, Resnik, R-E-Z-N-I-K at gmail.com. So welcome to my office. A young woman uh, who was about to get married within a, a month, I believe she was then 21 and a half, 20, 20 and a half, I'm not sure. But she was to get married uh, within three to four weeks, started having panic attacks. She happened to be a daughter of one of the nurses at the Shakta Center for Complementary Medicine. Remember I told you I worked for there for 15 years. I met her mother, who was a nurse, and her father at our annual Christmas parties for years. Uh, they're a beautiful couple. And the young woman was one of their four children. Uh, I asked Jennifer, let's call her Jennifer, it's not her real name. If she loved the man she was marrying, that was the beginning of our session. She told me she started having panic attacks, you know, um, and they're preparing for the wedding. And she said, absolutely. She told me that she adored her fiance and was in love with him since she was 12 and he was 19. She was their neighbor. Of course, he treated her as a child, was always courteous and nice, but she was a child. He was dating young women. And a few years earlier, he was dating her older cousin, whose name was Melissa. At the time he was 27, she, Jennifer, was 20. After a young man's relationship with her cousin uh, ended, cousin Melissa, remember, don't forget the name. After that relationship ended, he finally looked at Jennifer as a young woman, and the woman she was, 20, beautiful young woman. They started dating, fell in love, and after a year, he asked her to marry him. And six months later, there they were, preparing for the wedding, within a month from the wedding. And Jennifer started having panic attacks. All this information that I gave you, I got from Jennifer and speaking about her family, back and forth, maybe 20 minutes of a session. Then I asked her if she understood where the panic came from and when it started. What was the trigger? And she said she knew exactly when it started. She said it was when 
she thought that Melissa, her cousin, will be at the wedding. And it was natural. It was her sister's daughter. It couldn't, you know, it's like Italian family. You don't invite a member of the family. And but what I noticed when she said to me, and Melissa will be invited to the wedding, of course, when she said the word Melissa, and you know, my job is I pay attention, I looked at the expression of the face, when she actually said the name, Melissa, the tears started streaming from her eyes. So here is an example of me doing what I call re-anchoring. Because you understand, the word Melissa became a powerful anchor to pain. Remember, as a child, she was watching her beloved man walking hand in hand with her cousin. And now, as she told me, when I think she, she, he slept with her, he was making love to her, and now she would be at my wedding looking at me. And I first I told her, listen, yeah, all this happened. But who did he choose at the end? And she said she totally understood. But when she just thinks about in the word who came, Melissa, again, she started crying. She cannot stop and she cannot breathe. So here is what I ask her to do. But by the way, I have to tell you something. Remember, it's a video. So if you would see it, it would be more fun, more interesting. Well, all you will hear is the voices. But I'm telling you what you will hear also, there is a beautiful visual, which means I was saying the word, and then I was asking her to repeat the word. But with the word, I was also making faces, all different kinds of faces. And I asked her to mimic me, to copy me. And here we go. I hope you can hear it well. Here we go. Melissa. 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 You got probably the point, ladies and gentlemen. So what did I do? You, you, you should see, I was watching, still uh, smiling because of the faces we were making. Uh, with each time she, I said, she said, Melissa, we made it a monkey face, a dog face, and so on, so on. What happened? How did I re-anchor the experience? Remember, intellectually, she understood, you know, they dated. That's what people do in modern times. They're intimate. But then it was over. But the pain got anchored to the name. 
And the idea that she will see that woman, the word became painful. So I created a new association. You heard how she was laughing. She could barely follow me. And from that point on, as she was walking out of my office at that time, uh, I said, okay, so I want you to think about, and I said, Melissa, and she burst in laughter. And because, you know, I know, I, uh, I still know her mother, I keep in touch with the family. Uh, the wedding was great. Uh, Jennifer sent me a great text because she said she was actually walking down the aisle already. And apparently this Melissa was late. So when she came with somebody and as she was walking down the aisle, suddenly the doors opened from the right and she saw Melissa and she burst in laughter, like kind of almost inappropriately because people looked why she is laughing. But she couldn't tell anyone. So uh, now uh, Jennifer is happily married. She has two children. It's over. She didn't need psychotherapy. But what happened? Let's go a little further. What happened that she developed these panic attacks? Um, and by the way, in the first 20 minutes of the interview, when she told me that she started having uh, panic attacks when she recognized that Melissa will be part of the wedding. Um, I asked her, by any chance, did she have her period? And since it happened like only three, four weeks uh, before she came to my office, she thought for a moment and then in amazement, she said, how did you know? How do you know? Yes, I did. How did I know? Let me tell you what happens. Can, whether a woman is consciously aware of it or is not aware, having a period is a stressful experience. Why? Because of biology. Uh, female species are designed to conceive. So a woman, woman's mood after her period slowly begins to climb up. All, all the way going slowly up higher and higher to the time of ovulation and her body is screaming, I am ready to conceive. I'm talking about a girl who is 13 years old and menstruating 15 years 12. That's how the body works. The body is excited to conceive. And then one, two, three days after ovulation, when the body recognizes I did not, the whole body is saying, I have failed. And that's where, you know, many women become sad, um, have cramps, have, have discomfort, and a lot of it emotional sadness. That's why women, uh, you probably noticed, not women who never ch uh, tasted chocolate, but women who did often crave chocolate before their period. Why? Because they get kind of naturally depressed, and chocolate contains a lot of phosphorus which is a natural antidepressant. That's why, by the way, uh, the best horses in, the, in America are using where? Kentucky, remember Kentucky Bur Der Derby? Because what's unique about the grass in Kentucky, you can answer now in your mind, uh, it's called bluegrass. 
Why does it have blue color, bluish tinge? Because there is a lot of phosphorus, and phosphorus is, creates agility. It brings uh, people out of this slumber. So when a woman goes through her period, uh, she is a little bit depressed. So it's, there is already one, one kind of depressing episode. And if that would be just it, and then she's preparing for the wedding, the wedding is usually a stressful event. So that's okay. The body can and the mind can handle it. But there is something which I, I don't know if I, I don't think I read it somewhere, but I coined the term psychological overload. Now imagine she, also her mother, the nurse, uh, had some problems at work. I didn't know. And her mother, and, and of all people, Jennifer was the confidant of her mother. Her mother, in fact, always shared with her with whatever was happening in the family. So, and so she was concerned about what just her mother told her. She was having her period. And then at that moment, she thought, oh God, Melissa is going to come. You see, it was too much to handle. If there would be only one stressor or two, that would be okay. The same thing. Uh, many years ago, I worked with a woman who developed um, a fear of crossing street, uh, street. I think somewhere in one of our shows I shared with you actually, talking about, about um, treating trauma. Um, one woman who developed the cross, fear of crossing the street uh, because she... she um, Again, she had her period. She was reading a letter. Oh, she was just fired from a job. She was reading a letter from her father or from her mother saying that her father uh, fell and, and fractured his hip. They're going, going to be hip do hip replacement. Ta -ta -ta. So already three stressors. And then suddenly she heard the squeaking of the brakes. She was almost hit by a car. And that was an overload. And that's where a person gets stuck on that thing that the last trigger, the catalyst. And then she was afraid to cross the street. And again, she I, I believe, uh, if I remember correctly, it was a long time ago, she went for psychotherapy, and uh, the therapist wanted to explore her relationship with, with her parents, how she grew up. And so she got kind of bored after a few sessions, and she came to see me. And I explained to her what happened. And I said that we needed to rewire her brain, her connection. Um, and so I asked her to, for the next session to come um, to make an appointment for the time when I have my break, lunch break. And so when she came next time, uh, I actually took her out. At uh, that time, my office was on uh, Park Avenue and 88th Street. So it's not very busy, but Park Avenue is a wide, wide uh, avenue, and there is a, this, how do you call it, center, where the flower, they grow flowers. Yes, so so you cross um, one part of Park Avenue, then you can rest a little, and then you can cross to the other side, right? So I actually walked with her, maybe fifteen, twenty times that day. That is first, uh, she was walking, holding on to my hand. And I was telling her jokes and stories. 
and then we paused after we crossed half of Park Avenue. Then we went to this through the second part. On the way back, I was already holding her arm. She was not holding mine. I hold was holding hers, and so so slowly. Again, I was telling her jokes, uh, singing her uh, lullaby because I told her that you know I knew a lot of lullabies because I sang them to to my children and my mother sang to me and and I sang them in Russian. Kind of every to do everything to distract her attention, but to make her experience good. So I remember at the, at the last point, um, one point, one experiment before the last was that she was walking ahead of me, looking forward, but my fingertips were touching her shoulder. And the last one, she was walking and I was walking behind her and I was saying, I am next to you. I am following you. And she walked again. So maybe we spent 10, 15 minutes walking like that. And I think that she came for one more session, and that was it. And uh, it's simple. It's simple. You don't need to go deep into stories. Because after all, stories may have nothing to do uh, with the experience. Uh, Greeks used to say, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So in my attitude, the same in um, in in Western jurisprudence, there is an idea, innocent till proven guilty. So I take this attitude, capable till proven not capable. Uh, can work till proven that it needs more time. And very often I, I do this short session, or five sessions, or ten sessions, but it's not years. And the person is doing well. And that's it. Now, that's that's my story about the Melissa story. So now let's go to our emails. Let me have my sip of the tea. Mm. It's so good. I have to apologize to Judy, who wrote an email with her question a couple of weeks ago, and I never had a chance to address it. Judy wrote that she has a problem with how Adam and Eve were created. Because in the Bible it's written, you know, Adam was created, you know, God Lord formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So she had the problem that uh, the first human beings, which they were not really human beings as we understand them, because they were not born through uterus, but that, that Adam was born from the dust, and then Eve was born from Adam's side or rib, whatever way you want to trans translate the, the word. So, so Judy, you're trying uh, to understand creation through your intelligence and your inquisitive mind. But imagine that someone who is a billion times more complex and intelligent than you and I. Uh, could we, Judy, even 200 years ago, understand uh, how cloning works? Cloning, making 
a, a copy of a being. I believe in 1996, Dr. Ian Wilmot succeeded doing something which previously believed to be impossible. He cloned a sheep, remember? A sheep, 1996, I remember. A sheep called Dali. And before long, several animals had been successfully cloned. To make a clone, scientists transfer the DNA from an animal, animal somatic or uh, the body cells into an egg cell that has had its nucleus and DNA removed. The egg develops into an embryo and contains the same genes as the cell donor. So by the end of second millennia, human beings were able to create a living being from cells. Imagine it, uh, 25 years ago. So God, in God's limitless ingenuity, was definitely able to make a part of Adam into Eve. Now we still have a question of how was Adam created from dust from the ground? I don't know. And why don't you ask how was the planet Earth created with such an environment that life was possible? Scientists now, after having understood how many millions of conditions had to coincide for the Earth to come about, scientists now speak of an intelligent design. They cannot say God. Uh, one actually gives an analogy, a junkyard. So, how God formed man from dust from the ground. Um, imagine the, the analogy is, uh, imagine a junkyard and there are thousands of broken cars, refrigerators, uh, different equipment, but it's all broken. And imagine a hurricane comes and lifts all this junk up and kind of swings it for an hour or two. And then the hurricane subsides and the perfectly, absolutely perfect new Rolls Royce falls down. And if you ask, oh, how, how, how did it happen? There was no Rolls Royce there. There were just thousands of other broken cars. And somebody would say, oh, no, 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 it's just pieces bumped into each other and it happened that these pieces somehow fitted in each other and pieces of leather got sewed together and gasoline, all this, and now we have a car. Of course, it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. But that's what scientists, physicists are saying, that for the Earth to come about this way, even more impossible than to get that Rolls Royce from the junkyard. So to create uh, Adam, from Earth or from anything. That's a simple thing compared to creation of the universe. You see? And we are trying to, to understand the limitless mind with our limited mind. I think it's better to, well, better, you, you, you of course, you questioned whatever you want to question, but something that is verifiable, uh, and that is to see 
if that creator of Adam and Eve has something that is indisputable and something that could only come from the creator of the universe that knows past, present, future, knows every speck in the universe, knows every fish, every bird that we cannot possibly know. That would be an interesting journey. And if you read the book called The Coming of Evolution, now it has a new name it's called The Science Coming of Age by Samir Cohen. And he will talk to you about different incredible, incredible things that we learned from the Torah, from the Old Testament. And the test Old Testament was written over 3,000 years ago. The things that we are only beginning to understand now, and it's scientific papers that are quoted in, uh, in this book. That would be an interesting thing. And if, again, if that book is really written uh, or dictated by something that, that is so vast and so knowledgeable of past, present, and future, and every element of the universe, and it gave us a set of instructions, then for sure it makes sense to follow the instructions. One, one more email, and that's my friend from California, from West Coast, Ricardo. Uh, I always, I love his questions. They're all deep, all challenging. This actual question is challenging. I have to, I will have to answer it in two parts. The, well, here's what he wrote. Uh, in the previous shows, you mentioned gematria. And that's, you explained to you what it is. It's numerology within the Hebrew language. You mentioned gematria once, but did not go into it. Do you have any unique personal experiences with gematria? Also, along this topic, could you discuss the spiritual importance of the numbers and letters, uh, and Hebrew letters? Well, <laughs> uh, Ricardo, I will have to answer part of your question. And the second part, thank you for actually encouraging me to do it. I will have to prepare for. There is a lot of information on Hebrew letters and the meaning of numbers, uh, but I, I have to really work on it. I can tell you a few things which, which I know offhand and a little bit of my experience with numerology in my clinical practice, but, uh, but just to talk about gematria, it, there is so much depth and so much information. I just need to put it together. Just to give you offhand a couple of things. For example, the word of God, one of the the name of God, one of the names of God is spelled. It's called unpronouncing, pronounceable word. It consists of four letters: Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. Each number in Hebrew language corresponds. Each, each letter corresponds with a number. For example, Aleph, the first letter of the alphabet, corresponds with one, Bet with two, 
uh, gimel with three and so on and so on, dalit with four. So in it goes uh, first the first ten numbers and then to 10, 20, 30, 40 to, to uh, 90, and then hundreds till 400. So that's gematria. So if you take yud hey vav hey, uh, aleph is the f- first letter, hey fifth letter, vav sixth letter, and another hey is five. So it comes to 26. Interesting that the word English word God, G-O-D, also G is the seventh letter, O is 15th letter, and D is fourth letter, which also comes to 26. But if you take two and six and add them together, it becomes eight, which is infinity. Just, it's just a sliver. Uh, it was, for example, the, the, the name, one of the names of God, um, uh, the first one which actually we hear, uh, we read in Torah, is not yud hey vav hey. that's later. But the first, maybe you may remember, when I was quoting to you, when I started discussing the Torah, the very first line, the first sentence in the Torah begins with the words, Bereshit bara elokim et hashamayim ve'et haaretz which means Bereshit bara elokim in the beginning created God. So the word elokim is the first time we hear the name of God. And it's as elokim. It's a principle of God that is creative principle, like masculine principle, like yang of yin and yang. So, so the word elokim consists of five letters, Aleph, Lamed, He, Yud, and M. And it comes to number 86. But the word Chateva, which uh, He, Tet, Vet, and Ayan, also comes to 86. Isn't it interesting? But if you add 8 and 6, it becomes 15. And the meaning of number 15 is fulfillment of possibilities. Isn't it interesting? So so that basically the whole language, every letter is coded like this. I cannot tell you offhand because I want to do a little more research. I came across so many letters, like, for example, things coinciding like this. For example, the word for heart and the word for love have the same gematria, the same numerology, uh, the, and, and so on and so on, where the, the organ and the meaning behind the organ, emotional meaning behind the organ, carry the same numerology. But it's not only the numerology. For example, the, the word Nazi, you know, German Nazi. So where the word Nazi in Hebrew language is written as Netzach, Netzach. And in Hebrew, it means a curse. Remember, Hebrew is 30, at least 3,600 years old. Nobody spoke about Nazis at that time. But we know Nazi, Netzach, is a curse. Anyway, Ricardo, thank you for, for this good idea. I will work on it. And uh, I don't know if I will be ready for it by next week, but I will slowly work 
on presenting Gematria. I hope other people are also interested. The question is always, how can you benefit from that? Oh, I almost wanted to move to the next subject, but I forgot. I wanted to tell you also about how I used numerology in in my practice. I, I will tell you one little vignette. And if you read my article on night dreams, and if you didn't, I encourage you to do that. You go on my website, one sip more uh, of my tea. You go on my website, drpeterresnik.com, uh, go on the articles and read the article Dream Work. And there I have the meaning of numbers. Um, and the reason it's important because numbers appear in your night dreams. So, and one, uh, when I worked at the Shakta Center for Complementary Medicine, and remember, I haven't been with them now for, for at least 10 years. And the center actually is closed because Dr. Shakta became old, he retired, and nobody took over his practice. He was hoping that his son will go to medical school. Uh, Seth, he grew up with my son, but Seth decided not to, and so Dr. Shakta closed the sand. So, but I worked there, and it's I remember so well this experience. Uh, a young girl walked over to me. First, I was given a chart of a man, and I looked, and it's lung cancer. So, I walk out, and I call the name, and I see a nice gentleman next to his wife, and maybe a 10-year-old girl. And she jumps up, and I walk over to the father and say, hi, I'm Dr. Resnik. And she grabs my hand, looks, you know, like 10-year-old girl can look, looks in my eyes and says, Dr. Resnik, Dr. Resnik, I know you can help my father. Please, please, I love him so much. Ah, and I already know his diagnosis. Uh, and we know that people with lung cancer, 91% statistically die, only 9% survive. So uh, I don't know if she spoke this way to, to everyone, if she said the same thing to Dr. Schachter, because Dr. Schachter saw this gentleman before me. But like when she, the way she looked at me, you know, I shivered. Like there was so much hope. Uh, and so he came in and we started talking and um, he told me that he was already receiving intravenous. We were giving liatril extract from uh, apricot seed, which actually demonstrated that it could accelerate the healing, then vitamin C and so on. But there was not much progress. And... But and, and Dr. Shakta suggested that this man sees me. So I started working, and you're already familiar with my work on mind-body, to look into the meaning of, of the cancer, to write a letter to cancer, uh, to, to come through night dreams and reveal the meaning and, and what needs to be done and so on. Maybe one or two sessions we had where I asked the man to... Uh, to write his night dreams. The dreams were not coming, but on the third session, 
I think it was third or fourth session, he showed up, uh, lost even more weight. He was fading away. Uh, <clears throat> and he shared a dream where he takes an elevator and he, the elevator opens on the 16th floor. Now, this man doesn't know numerology. And he, and he walks out, it's just he sees nothing in front of him, but he is relieved. And then the dream ends. That's all. He had only one dream. And I say, oh, boom. Number 16, remember in numerology, is death. So the guy is ready to die. The guy is ready to go. And I think about, honestly, I share with you now, I have goosebumps. I think about that girl who was looking in my eyes and begging for her father. And remember, you can go in a dream and make corrections. So I, I asked him, you know, do you understand the meaning? He said, no. I said, well, then why don't we do a little waking dream? Close your eyes, go in the elevator. And he goes, um, but yes, I, I'm back. Uh, I am at the, uh, I'm so tired. I am at 16th floor. I say, what do you see? He says, I see nothing. It's just, I'm so tired. I want to rest. I want to, um, I'm, I'm ready to finish, to uh, open my eyes. I said, no, 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 no. Are you willing to explore? We see, remember, I cannot tell him, go to another floor because it will be artificial. There is nothing, no call, no change from inside. I can only encourage or ask questions. And I say, would you be willing to explore what's out there? And he say, he pauses and then says, well, why don't I try 18th floor? And I go inside, yes, because remember 18 means life. You know my email, peter18resnik at gmail.com. That's why we put 18. So, and he I, I say, so do what you want to do. He says, I press on number 18. And I say, what do, what do you see? He said, the elevator door opened and he smiles. He says, that's funny. It looks like the door opened and it's, I am, it's a, my daughter's bedroom. And I say, what do you want to do? And he says, well, I'm so tired. I want just to, to, to sit down. I say, is the daughter there? He said, no. I want to sit down and I'll lie down actually on her bed and wait for her. And I say, okay, do what you want to do. Da, da, da. My regular um, technique, keep it to yourself. Now go back, open your eyes. This is finished. But inside, you're probably already guessing now, I knew that he chose life, that he chose to, to wait for his daughter. Remember, it didn't come, the image didn't come that he was next to his wife, but his daughter's bedroom, and he was waiting. So, and at the end of the story is quite uh, remarkable, to me at least. Again, I, it was incredible. Because, okay, I saw him, and in fact, the treatment uh, at the staff, um, we had every Friday, we had a staff meeting. A um, couple of weeks later, they were mentioning his name, Dr. Sartre said he's doing a little better, um, and and then a little better, and and then he saw me maybe one or two times, and then and then I didn't see him. 
I worked for a number of years after that, maybe for seven years. And if we don't see somebody for um, more than a year, so the files, uh, the chart, charts are put away. And my notes, uh, a little chart, separate chart, I had my chart separate with notes about the sessions, I, I'd also put aside. And some seven years after, or seven or eight years after the marvelous session, of course, I forgot about the men. I saw so many people. I was looking for someone's chart. And suddenly I came across his chart. And I remembered. And there I have his name, uh, his address, his telephone number. And I'm compelled to call. And before I know it, without thinking, I'm dialing. And you know how things happen sometimes. In an instant, you realize something. It's only second past, but you understand that, oh, I shouldn't have done it. As I dialed, I well, the, the telephone rings. I hear, doo -doo 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 -doo, and suddenly I think, what am I doing? What will I say? Is, is he alive? Uh, or or I, it's just to, to stir up the pain. And suddenly, before I can hang up, the, te the telephone is picked up and I hear a voice of a young woman. Now this girl is 17 or 18. Very, very mature, but it's a girl. And she says, hello. And, and I don't know what to say. Is your father alive? And I go, uh, this is Dr. Resnick. And then there is a pause. And then she yells, dad, dad, it's Dr. Resnick from the Shakta Center. And I go, oh, God. So he was alive. I had a wonderful conversation. And I believe the big turn happened then. Anyway, that's it. That's my story. And I will talk about Gematria in the future, Ricardo. Now I want to talk about uh, the email that uh, Larry sent me. He was kind enough to send the email uh, with a little video that I understand he intended to change my mind to help me to understand things maybe that I did not understand. And the video was with Dr. Mate. And I know the work of Dr. Mate. Uh, I followed his work for a long time. He's a beautiful, compassionate person, developed uh, programs uh, uh, where he teaches compassion to oneself and others and so on. And Dr. Mate was speaking about, remember Larry is the guy who called last week and spoke about uh, what he called genocide uh, in, in Gaza. And Dr. Mata was speaking of what was happening in uh, Israel and uh, uh, also said that Israeli uh, Israelis commit genocide. Uh, by the way, Larry said that uh, Al Shifa Hospital uh, was did not really have tunnels, and that even uh, Washington Post wrote about it. I have to tell you, independent observers from Germany and France who are forensic specialists were at the site. And Al Shifa Hospital and many other hospitals are proven to have tunnels and have stacks of ammunition. That is why the people on the streets, people who are inspired by, by 
a lot of Arabs because there were many Arabs through um, throughout Europe. The people on the street are protesting. If you notice, European leaders are not saying anything to Israel to make to change their course because there it was proven over and over again that indeed uh, the they dug tunnels exactly right next to or under hospitals and mosques and, and schools. And, and Washington um, Post and Mike Adams, I spoke about him, had no decency to acknowledge that they made a mistake. That also includes Amy Goodman from WBAI, who I listened to for many years, who interviewed a woman who who was a physician in one of the hospitals, I, I think it was also Alpha Pfeiffer, uh, and said, we, we would, I work in this hospital for 10 years. I would know that there are, there are soldiers. I have never seen soldiers. And then it was proven there are indeed Hamas uh, fighters. So, and Amy Goodman never mentioned, apologized, and said, no, this was not true. The same thing, just before I started my show, I heard, uh, Ralph Nader's guest saying, Israel is an apartheid, apartheid. This is such nonsense. Uh, ten current members of Israeli parliament are Arabs. Arabs are 20% of population of Israel. So it, it, then it should be, you would say, 24. But apartheid with ten members of um of Knesset being Arabs. Actually, I prepared a little clip for you to play. I hope we can have enough time where Israeli Arab is interviewed. Let's see if you can hear it. Are you going to let the green oh, heating oh, company and oh. here from Michigan is taking on the billion dollar heating oh. industry? Okay. Sorry. Welcome back no. to Uncensored. I'm joined now by. Sorry, it didn't work. Welcome back to Uncensored. Dr. Campbell Marte no. make global headlines. Only appeared in an interview with. No, I, I'm sorry, it didn't work. I prepared uh, for you a little clip where and a woman uh, who is an Arab who went to university who spoke about it that. Uh, she graduated from university. There was no absolutely, absolutely not true that they are oppressed and they're, they're checked on, on every point. And that and she spoke about having more freedom, knowing that she had more freedom and more ability to create businesses. Arabs have then then more than in any country, Arab country around them. Uh, and I have to say, nothing like this ever happened in the war history of war warfare, where the attacking army would send emails and texts, 5 million emails and 14 million texts uh, to citizens before attacking uh, the, the town. There is a special unit. I receive um, and updates from Israeli consulate 
about what is happening. It's an incredible, now it's a totally technological war. And uh, there is a special unit that controls drones. They get information and send it right away to the, to the front lines. I was watching, <clears throat> excuse me. I was watching a video where Israelis speaking in Arabic, uh, tell people of a particular street, guide them to get out of their houses and to move to some street. Remember, the drones are flying, so they're watching the streets. And to, to go south, to, to leave their town because, they, because there are tunnels around and there will be bombing. And then you hear the, uh, the Arabs saying, we cannot, because when we walk out, the Hamas people are shooting at us. And the drone, indeed, the drone flies over that street and they see four people with machine guns. And so then they, you see a, a strike, an airstrike, uh, and then these people are gone. And then the operator tells the Palestinians, you can get out now. And these people indeed come out and, and thank the operator. And then they go to south. It's the, it's a propaganda war. And most um, media accepts the narrative of Hamas, the murderers, the rapists, the killers of little babies who throw babies in ovens, and they trust them, not Israelis. Fortunately, Israelis have a lot of people now in Israel, from Germany, from France, from other European countries, who are observers. And Israelis, everything is accountable. They show what happens every single day. What I did watch, what I found interesting, is um, a show by Farid Zakaria, who is a Muslim by birth, though he says he is not, he is half uh, believes in God and half agnostic. But he is a host of CNN um, show Farid Zakaria's GPS and writes weekly uh, for Washington Post. And he spoke about this terrorism and that it will not stop till Hamas, that Hamas will uh, disappear. But he asked a good question. What will happen after? It was a rhetorical question. What will happen after? What? Uh, he actually had the discussion, a dialogue with somebody. And that person asked him, so what is your vision? What is possible to do? And he says, the best outcome would be if economically, after Hamas is over, and somebody, hopefully some Arabic country, will be willing to take over control over Gaza, because you cannot um, Fatah, uh, the, from West Bank, the government, cannot be trusted either. Remember, even Fatah from West government, what do they do? They give pensions to people who blow themselves up as, as um, suicide bombers. And by the way, one, one of the leaders of Hamas, uh, a woman who was accepted to, uh, in the government because of what? She is known as a uh, suicide mother. Three of her sons blew themselves up and killed Israelis. And she announced, I sacrificed three of my sons and I have eight more to send. And so uh, she was popularly um, 
voted and she became part of the Hamas government. So you cannot, or Fatan on the West Bank, they train children from the age of five to hate uh, Israelis and to, to um, prepare themselves as, well, I don't remember the term, Shahid or whatever, as a martyr. So as long as, uh, I think Golda Meir said, as long as they hate us more than they love their children, there will be no peace. But Farid Zakaria suggested if there is some country that will be able to, or a group of preferably Arabic countries that will be able to help Palestinians to govern themselves, then there is hope for them to have a separate state and Israelis have their own state. And then he said, Arabic countries are very capable to create something like European Union and become a formidable economic power. And that actually was initiated by Donald Trump. I'm still surprised that he and his team did not receive Nobel Prize for Peace. Nobody before Trump could ever bring peace between Arab countries and Israel. And they initiated what is called the Abraham Accord. And hopefully after Hamas history, we'll start a new history of cooperation between countries. And then hopefully Palestinians can have their own autonomy or their own uh, state. It's very expensive to govern people who hate you. Israelis don't need it. Israelis withdrew. They started controlling in and out all these talks. It's the biggest uh, open air jail, uh, uh, Gaza. It's all nonsense. Nobody made them jail. Nobody controlled what was coming in, coming out after Israelis withdrew in 2005. They only started controlling it when they, when, when Hamas started shooting missiles. And then they needed to know what is brought in Gaza. So, uh, look, I didn't have a chance to talk about revelations to John. Uh, I believe Lincoln Brown from Mount Vernon uh, spoke about it, but I did revelations to John. I want to talk about that. And I want to continue talking uh, about the wealth, the richness that the Bible stories offer us. But we'll have to do it next week. I hope you were with me through this hour and uh, benefited some one way or another. Uh, thank you very much for being with me. Be happy. Peace to all who want to live in peace.